helpful for them. Setting God's work in a context that they would understand, which is really helpful for them. And also, through the thread, I don't know if you've picked up yet, but there's an unholy trinity that stands against God. There's the false prophet, the beast, and the dragon. They're all sort of starting to come together in a way that opposes the work of God and his people. So we're starting to see what's happening. And this, this is a little bit of a pause in the fighting, if you like, where, where John sees some other things that are going on behind. And I think we've become used to now um, the way this narrative works in that things are reported and described, and then they're reported and described from another angle. Uh, those of you who were fans of the TV series 24 when it was on uh, would know exactly what this book is about because it's sort of saying, well, while this was going on, this was happening as well. Uh, and, and maybe the Jim Rockford files, they used to do that as well. So that sort of idea of playing two things off against each other. Anyway, uh, in this chapter then, we've got the, the, we've got the position, if you like, the state of the redeemed in verses 1 to 5. We've got a final call uh, in which the angels offer one more chance for repentance. And then the final heart harvest where, where this figure uh, who looks like one, uh, like a son of man, echoing that wor those words from Daniel, um, is, is overseeing the harvest of the earth. And it, it's actually quite a tor tortuous and difficult passage. One can struggle if you like, to, to actually make sense of what's going on. It would be very difficult. One or two of you here possibly would be able to remember sort of the trauma and the scale of, of, of destruction through which we've lived and that we're remembering this week. But, um, but for those of you who aren't, I'm a huge film fan. Uh, and um, I went to see on Friday afternoon um, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, now, I love monster movies because they're broadly plotless. They're fine. They're just, they're just wanton carnage and destruction. Uh, but I was really struck, and Godzilla 1 was very good, but this was a much better sequel. However, there's really important, um, really important image that I took away from it, which, which was quite striking, and it was this. Now, some of this is made up, okay? The three-headed dragon in the middle called King Kedora is, made, is a made-up thing. But around all of this, is go, all around Kedora is going this massive destruction as he tries to sort of take possession of and do with the earth as he sees fit. I was very struck that the, the film producers included this image of a cross in the middle of it, you know, right at the side. What's going on? All of this destruction, all of silent all of this power being unleashed, and the cross seems silent. The cross seems powerless. There's no response. It's not Jesus who comes back and saves the planet. It's Godzilla. You know, it's, it's, so it's the world we live in is asking these questions. But the receivers of these words, these letters, this, this book, would have been in a very similar sort of situation, but real, and therefore more so. They would see the persecution that's coming. They would see and hear about friends and family and relatives who were being taken, taken away by the, by the persecution of, of the Roman emperors. And they'd be saying, who or what is going on? And against all of this, who can stand? Who will stand when this is happening? So we get the idea that, 
that this, this, this part of the, uh, the, the revelation is, is an encouragement, hopefully. I particularly want to focus on, on these earlier verses, but I think there's a, an important thing to have to hold on to, which certainly when I was sort of praying about it in the week, uh, it was really struck me. Lots of imagery here, lots of imagery about the Old Testament, and the tension, if you like, of being part of heaven and also still on earth. And, and so a helpful and encouraging uh, image, I think. Lots of things that we hope would be good for us. So um, it's important that when we see the, when the angels come in the second half of the chapter, when the angels come in the second half, I'm jumping forward a little bit, I'm aware, um, but as the, the battle uh, uh, commences and judgment comes, these two angels come with these sickles. And the first is given a sickle to harvest the earth. And, and the words that are, are used there are, take your sickle because the time to reap the harvest of the earth is ripe. And it's really, and, and the imagery is of like the white ears of corn. And that to God, we're, we're an offering. That in the Old Testament, there was this grain offering, which was the life of the people, which was, the, which was what God wanted to see, a, a return on what he'd done, a response. And Jesus in John 4 talks about the harvest being white and ready for harvest. So that first angel is coming to, to call us in, to gather us in, to bring the people of God to be with our Heavenly Father. And secondly, uh, we see that the second angel uh, comes to bring uh, judgment and pour out God's wrath. And there's more of that, so we won't overdwell on it today, but there's plenty to come. But it's important to remind ourselves that there will be blood. Judgment comes. And that's, a, that's, a, that's an important theme. It's, it's, it's a horrific scenario and so with all of these things going on and going on around us and, and for the readers of this there's what comfort can we take from it who will stand who are these people whom God has called and what hope do they have so we see in the let's just turn our attention to the early verses then now verse one I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion so that's a really powerful image. Mount Zion was the, was the place where God met his people. It was the center of his activity on earth. It was one of the most important features. And there is the lamb. And the imagery, the way the word stood, standing is used, is actually that of sort of conquest. This lamb has conquered. This lamb has overcome. He's standing up there and he's saying, Look at me. What have I done? Look at what I have done. And so it's a very powerful image, a very strong uh, image. And then around the Lamb, uh, with him, are this 144,000 who had his name, his name, and his father's name written on his foreheads. Now, if you flipped back to chapter 7, uh, you would see that this is very, very, well, this is the same group of those mentioned in chapter 7, verse 4, the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. This is the church. This is the ingathering of God's people. And we know it's, we can be sure that it's the same because they've both been marked on their forehead, haven't they? They've been sealed by God. They've been made his. He said, you're mine. 
that's it. I've put my mark on you. You belong to me. And I think that's an important thing to hold on to, actually. I belong to God. It should shape the way we live and think. It should change the way I view myself. It should change the way I look at other Christians. They belong to God. They're God's own treasured possessions. He's made a choice. He's made them his. So it's a very important thing. And they've been sealed, and they are sealed with his name and the name of the Lamb. They're sealed by the activity of God in their lives. They're the recipients of his adoption of over them and of his cleansing of them. That's why it should shape us. That's why it should be changes. I belong to him because he's made me one of his children. And he's washed me. He's made me clean. I think that's fabulous. So this 144,000 are, are, are like standing as this... Sorry, I don't think it's a literal figure. Is that okay? I think it's a big symbolic figure. You put a thousand, a thousand is, is kind of um, adds to the military feel of this, that Roman armies were organized in thousands, and 144 is a number of completion. So it's a big number. Um, somebody I trained with was uh, brought up as a Jehovah's Witness, and within their household, they used to go to a, a communion service once a year in the cricket ground at Melbourne. And if you thought, as a Jehovah's Witness, that bread and wine would be passed round, if you thought you were one of the 144,000, then you were allowed to take bread and wine. But if not, you just passed it on. The very symbols of what God has done for us were things that other people treated as too sacred to consider themselves worthy of. They didn't think that God would love them, could love them that much. Horrific. Terrible. Um, but this 140,000, symbolic figure of the whole uh, of God's people. Uh, and it's interesting what is said about them in, in the verses that follow. Uh, we hear a sound of heaven like a roar of rushing waters, a peal of thunder. Sound was that of harpists playing. And verse 3, they sang a new song. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders who we've met earlier. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000. There's this wonderful dynamic of the people preparing to welcome in the kingdom. And in order to do so, new song is given to them. New joys, new things are going to be revealed to them when this comes. And they couldn't learn it here because it's not ready. But they're being taught it by, by, by the population of heaven themselves it's this wonderful welcoming uh, sense of being made ready uh, to receive the king as he comes the lamb himself and then verse four which is where i kind of got stuck if you ever get stuck reading the bible i do it too and um, these are those who did not defile themselves with women for they kept themselves pure Somebody said that's the most difficult sentence John managed to write because it pre presents a picture of a sort of holy warriors, this, this kind of um, army of holy virgin warriors. And yet, actually, we've read earlier that this 144,000 is going to include us. And I suspect that that wouldn't be a description of us. We, you know, many of us are married. Not many of us have kept ourselves pure, uh, and there's a sense of what's happening here. 
What is John trying to get across? They're described in negative and positive terms. They did not defile themselves with women, and we'll come to that, um, which is a negative description, isn't it? But they kept themselves pure, which is positive, which is good news. We like that. That would probably be one that we would uh, uh, vote to. But, but what are we understanding here? Is there a suggestion that this is holy warriors who've um, refrained from sexual relations because they're at war? Or is the picture bigger than that? In 2 Samuel 11, David's betrayal, if you like, of Bathsheba and Uriah, Uriah says it would be terrible for me to have sexual relations while my men are fighting. It was a thing. Men, did, men at war did not do that. So is, what's going on here? Is, is something being built up? Well, there's a clue in the word defile, isn't there? They didn't defile themselves. One of the things that we read early on as we plowed into Revelation 2 was that Thyatira committed idolatry, but it was described in terms of relations with that woman Jezebel. And what John is writing about is what he's trying to describe is that these people had not committed idolatry had not gone off with false religion, had not worshipped false gods, which so often in the Bible is compared with adultery. Think about, just read the book of Hosea if you think I'm fibbing. And what he's describing is a group of people who did not waver, get drawn or sidetracked away from faith in God alone who didn't sort of listen to the stories and the lies and the Gnostic theologies and the weird philosophies that were invading the church and are so prevalent today. He didn't listen to them. These are people who managed to discern that that was not good for them. That it wasn't what God wanted. And then the thing about keeping themselves pure, well, it's quite likely, if you've seen 2 Corinthians 11, there's this image, isn't there, of the church being the bride of Christ. And so this preparation of this focus of a group of people who just wanted to be with Jesus because he was the love of their lives. He was the most important thing to them. And because of that, they kept themselves pure. It motivated them. It encouraged them. It excites them. And there's a really interesting possible way of looking at this. But in the early parts of Genesis, when the, 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 the angels come down and have relations with the women, Genesis 6, God's kind of said, you can't do that. I've got people who are better. I'm going to have a group of people who won't do that. Look. And it's one of those things in Ephesians 3, where God is demonstrating to the cosmos the, what his church would be like. They won't, even the, if the, even the angels in Genesis 6 fell and defiled themselves and forgot their purity. But here's a group of people who, through Christ and only through Christ, have been kept for that purpose. And I find this quite challenging. I hope you do too, because it's how do we live? I mean, here we all are, bobbling along. How, do we, <laughs> how does this take shape in our lives today? What difference does it make? How can I make sense of this? Because we've got this tension, haven't we? We have this tension of how can I be the kind of person that knows God Jesus' commands well enough to not defile myself without becoming a Pharisee? 
most of Jesus' trouble were with people who knew the law quite well. And how do I keep myself so enraptured with, with Christ but not lose sight of him amongst all of the things that he's willing to do and may or may not do for us? There's that tension. We have this enormous responsibility to keep Jesus' commands and we have this wonderful uh, freedom at the same time. How do we bring those things together? How do we hold them? How have you done that all your life? How have you done that so far? Because it's tough. We don't get it right all the time. We know what we should do, but we don't do, we don't do it. We know what we shouldn't say, but we say it. Sometimes we know what we shouldn't feel, but we feel it. We lose our way. We lose track. We forget what this, what this internal thing is that God is doing in us. And that call to be faithful is something that, that, that is a struggle, isn't it? It's the challenge. This group of people that, that Christ is bringing to himself, that he's called in, that he's won a victory for, are people described as pure. They're described as first fruits. They're described as no li- having no lies. They're described as blameless. Well, how does that happen? How does that take shape in our lives? Knowing what we know, knowing what we are like, how does that take shape? We could pursue and, and sort of follow the law and become Pharisaic and develop our own sets of rules and codes, and life then becomes a series of complex decision trees based on, well, I should do this because of this, and I should do this because of this. Does that feel like freedom? Does that feel like faith? Does that feel like the, the, the life that God wants us to have? Or do we unthinkingly just embrace anything that looks spiritual? Especially if we've, we've tacked something onto it. And then we just want to look for blessing wherever there's blessing. Look to be blessed. I don't know if that's realistic either, to be honest. I think, it's, I think the life that we followed, called to, is, is tough. In verse second part of verse 4, we get a clue about how this takes shape in our lives. We see that, we read, that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, Jesus called his disciples to follow him. Not just like slavishly follow wherever he went, but actually to learn from his example, learn from his ways, learn from the things that he did and he said, the ways that he did and said them. To be guided by him and, his holy, and the Holy Spirit who comes uh, at, his, at his promise. It's a life where his pattern takes shape in us. Where we're shaped by him because he's in us. That freedom and that uh, ability to, to keep his law and do his things the way he would do them comes from having him in us. We can't do it by ourselves. That's what redemption is, isn't it? To be bought by him so that he could live in us and we could live in him and live through him. We're about to remind ourselves of those words. So we follow the lamb wherever he goes. These people reading this for the first time would have had no doubt fears about, well, what if I get told to send, what if I get sent to this city or what if the people come knocking on my door and ask me if I'm a Christian? What will my answer be? How will I respond? 
We know they're powerful, but we have here a picture of what Christ has done. He's purchased. He's purchased us to do his things and to do them his way in his power. That should change the way we look at things. That should change the way that we try to stand. We can't do it in our own strength. But we should be able to respond to his call. We might be called to places where we don't see God's blessings. We might be called to be amongst people who don't do things like we do. How do we live then? Can we be like Christ in those places? Can we have that love and that sacrificial self-giving that he wants us to follow? That's the pattern that is shaping all of this. That's what put him at the top of the mountain. That's what took him to the cross and out of the grave. And that's Jesus' call on us. If we want to stand for something in a world that's going slowly or quickly to pot around us, then maybe that pattern, that pattern of holding fast to what is good and seeking to please Christ, maybe those are the ways to live. It may be very simple things, and it's what he's called and do. But that's a start. And it's what he's called us for. Shall we pray?